Ukrainian music. We, we think of uh, various uh, provinces called republics of the Soviet Union. The Ukraine, and each of these places has its own kind of culture, its own kind of music, much of it indeed suppressed today. And so my guest is Oleg Satchuk, who lives in Chicago, who's first-generation Ukrainian, but who he's, his interests, he's, he's a political science and law student, but his interests primarily in music and, and musicology, specifically Ukrainian. And he's brought a variety of records. And out of it, we get a, the nature of Ukrainian culture, history, through its music and its instruments. The program in a moment after this message. Ruta Plow, Red Flower, and the singer, a remarkable story here, Vladimir Ivashuk. Vladimir Ivashuk. Oleg, who, who is what the song and the man? Vladimir Ivashuk was probably the most popular young Ukrainian composer, composer of popular songs. Uh, he didn't want to write, as very, very many intellectuals in Ukraine today do not want to write anything in Russian because they defend their traditions. He didn't want to write songs in languages other than Ukrainian. He probably was not the best Ukrainian songwriter, but he was very popular, and he was becoming an embarrassment. There was a contest coming up in the Soviet Union, which the KGB feared, feared he might win, and had he won the contest, they would have conferred, they would have had to confer on him the order of hero of the Soviet Union. Consequently, in April of this, uh, of 1979, he was found in a forest as if a, a bird who had been thrown against a tree by, by a hurricane force wind about 20 feet up in the air with his eyes gouged out, wounds all over his body. The KGB said it was a suicide. So you, you think it was the KGB that well, did it because he would not write in Russian? Yes. The people uh, in Lviv, uh, the largest city in western Ukraine, which was once known as Lemberg during Austria's time, uh, didn't uh, believe it was a suicide either. He was so popular that uh, people from all over Ukraine came to his funeral. There were maybe from 10 to 20,000 people. Uh, we've, we've heard the stories from very it's many sources. In, in Kiev? In Lviv. In Lviv. Right. His funeral lasted really for over three weeks. As much as the regime tried they couldn't stop people from bringing piles and piles of flowers to his grave. Uh, it was maybe the second time that the regime could not do something about an out a public outburst in Ukraine in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. The first time was in Dnipropetrovsk. In 1973, there was a workers' strike. Some 15,000 workers from the electrical factory went on strike, and they won. Mm. The regime met their demands. This time, the people just saw that one of yeah. their young flowers had been destroyed, and they also protested. The, the song, uh, Red Flower, Ruta Flower, the, flower the, the red flower is the flower of uh, Ukraine, is it not? It's one of the flowers yeah. of Ukraine. It's also known in Lithuanian uh, mythology and tradition, as far as I know. It must be a flower which is common to most of Eastern Europe. What's interesting about the song, it's a love song in which the composer speaks of his love in, in, in terms of nature, which is a very common element in Ukrainian songs. Somehow our people are so tied to the earth that even today, when they sing, they sing of love in terms of nature. Nature. Of the sunflower, of the ruta, of, of the river Dnipro. I know, as you're talking, we're going to go along and show the development of the various influences in Ukrainian music. 
And so his wife, his widow, Sofia Rotaru. Sofia Rotaru. Is a popular singer. Rotaru. She is the most popular singer in the Soviet Union. Uh, although this song we're going to hear might not be the best song to show off her voice, it was composed by her husband. It's called The, the Song Will Be Among Us. This is Evachuk song. Evachuk. Yes. Yes. Uh, we're fading Sofia Rotaru because. Uh, Oleg Satchuk, my guest, has so much music here. Uh, we uh, know the variety. We heard in the background a number of it, among them the fiddle, the violin. And now we come to instruments and history. It's an interesting thing about uh, popular songs in the Soviet Union. Uh, young people there, young mu musicians, don't have to worry about the cost of production. So uh, luckily they can have many people in an ensemble and use in, in the background things as a violin, cymbalan, a variety of instruments as you'll hear later on. Very sad that for music such as what uh, such as you've just heard, someone would be killed. It's it's a tragedy to mankind. Whether it happens in Ukraine or in India or in the United States anywhere. Yeah. To be killed for art. 19, in nine, uh, during the 1930s, during Stalin's purges, uh, in 1922, there were 256 uh, published Ukrainian writers. By 1933, 29 remained. So here we have more than we call cultural suppression. We come to the instruments. You're talking about the instruments now. Now you speak of Eastern, there are various, there are it seems there are various cultures to musical approaches in different parts of the Ukraine. Ukraine is so vast uh, that stretches from the Carpathian Mountains in the west, which have a culture all their own, and all the way to the Russian border uh, close to the... To the Carpathian Mountains would be border of Hungary. Between Hungary, uh, Poland, Romania. Yeah. And here, so we hear now. What music from there? We'll hear a few instruments indigenous to the Carpathian region of Ukraine. Uh, we'll hear a, the way a, a violin sounds first, and then we'll hear a cymbalan and an instrument called a trembita, which is long, a long bark uh, horn. Now the violin, is it, the, is it played as in mountains in Appalachia here, you know, from the hip? Or? Similar. No, it's <laughs> played the way a violin is played normally, but uh, the style of playing, as far as uh, the use of the bow, resembles that of, of our folk music. Yeah, right. mountain music here. Right. Let's hear that. Okay. Carpathian Mountains, you know, that could be Appalachian Mountains. It could be Mountains of Hungary, Carpathian. It could be, it almost sounds like it's mountain music. That's a very a interesting thing in uh, itself. You know that yeah. there are certain melodies from the Carpathian Mountains which I found are shockingly, uh, if I can wrongly use that word, similar to melodies of the Inca Indians in Peru. It's just incredible. Melodies in mountain, mountainous regions throughout the world so often resemble each other. Well, it has that, it just, I, it has that I, I imagine, I'm just guessing, that free, that wild, that open quality that is of the landscape too. The people are different. You spoke of nature. The, uh, people the people are different. The language is different. The culture is different. Yet musically, Alan Lomax could really. <laughs> people are <laughs> stubborn. Had, Mountain had, people are stubborn. No matter where yeah. in the world you find them. So the cymbalum. Now, I would think of the cymbalum as a gypsy instrument. You know, Bela Babai here is a Hungarian gypsy for many years in Chicago. His group. He played the fiddle, of course. But his, 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 there was a cymbalum there. How describe the cymbalum. 
Cymbalan is a an instrument which probably comes from India. We probably uh, got it in Ukraine from India through the gypsies. It's a many-stringed instrument which sometimes is plucked, but in Ukraine it's uh, hammered w with hammers. I don't know how many strings it has, but it's like a small uh, desk with strings. Well, across I it. suppose it's like the American dulcimer, too, in a way. You said hammers. And yes. So that's yes. laid out horizontally yes. and hit. It's a, a huge, it's a, it's, you, you might say the Ukrainian variation, Hungarian variation, on the dulcimer. The, see, here we have the, uh, I'll ask you about gypsies later, about Ukrainian gypsies, the, the symbolum. Just giving us the idea. I, I think of gypsies too and hearing this too. Are there, there always have been, of course, in the past, many Ukrainian gypsies, the gypsies wandering, of course. Imagine hitting. Many, many gypsies. They're, they're part of our mythology, part of our culture. Uh, they were mostly exterminated by Stalin. Stalin very brutally destroyed the Tartars in Crimea. He also destroyed the gypsies. And also Hitler during World War II. I think in the early days, in fairness, in the early days of the Soviet Union, as I recall, there was an attempt to, and it probably was wrong, to acclimatize the gypsies. You know, the idea is to give them land, yes. but of course it was anti-the gypsy tradition. How little they knew about the gypsies. So we have trembita. What's the trembita? The trembita is, is an instrument used by uh, uh, shepherds high in the hills to call to one another. Uh, it's used in many, on many occasions at funerals in the hills, but mainly when the sun sets in the mountains, a shepherd will hold it up. It's about 12 feet long, made of bark, and just call to other shepherds on, on distant hilltops, and the echoes of the Tramita reverberate throughout the mountains. horn, of course, here again, thoughts come to mind. You know, the, uh, the shepherd's horn in all societies, it's almost like the African drum, and that's the instrument of communication, too. Yes. There's communication here, too, isn't it? There's an interesting, interesting story. A friend of mine at the University of Illinois, Richard Norton, Professor Norton, has just written a book, uh, which he is in the process of publishing, about the dialectics of tonality. He applies Hegel's thoughts to music, and his theory is that Western music, uh, particularly classical music, developed uh, because of man's choosing. We, cho we chose to hear particular tones, and we built our whole musical tradition on those tones. Now, Hegel said man should liberate himself. Professor Norton uh, uses that approach in music, and he believes that man should, as Schoenberg uh, did, and later his students, and now uh, Henze in Germany, liberate, we should liberate ourselves from the constrictions of tonality. Now, I mention this because as it relates to the music we're hearing now, what you'll hear later in the program, 
based on that theory, you realize could not have sounded any differently than it sounds because the land made it sound this the way is it also, as you know this is alan the american musicologist alan lomax's theories through the manner of singing he, he goes a step further through the manner of singing studying he was studying italy and some of the eastern european countries and spain but primarily italy because of the various cultures in italy the rocky area it was and the, there were different states before the unification that through the manner of singing you can know how the people behave to one another what they're like and so yes so what suppose we further now vocal we haven't talked nina matvienko who's nina matvienko nina matvienko is a soloist with the choir uh, ukrainian choir in kiev called Viryovka. now there's a story behind that too uh the first national ukrainian choir was the koshets choir formed in 1917 or 1918. During the revolution for independence, the wars between 1917-1921 in Ukraine, Kosic took his choir on a tour of Western Europe and he never came back. He was the husband, by the way, of Nina Kosic, the, the soprano. She was Ukrainian. They never came back. That was the first, uh, first time a group defected as a whole from the Soviet Union. The second group which defected is a group you'll hear later on in the program, the Ukrainian Banderist Choir, which defected in 1945 after the Second World War. N Nina but was Nina known, yeah, Nina is part of the yeah. choir which is called Viryovka Choir, formed by a man called Viryovka later on in, in the Nina late singing. 20s. She, she is the peasant singer. She is the peasant singer. Nina is the sound of a voice of a woman who in the 19th century would have to leave her child alone all day with a cucumber to suck on while she worked in the fields. See, uh, we have very much in common with, uh, with the American black. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you ever realized uh, this. I admire Martin Luther King very much. Our uh, history, our heritage is similar. My forefathers must have been slaves. Uh, they were serfs like anywhere in, in Russia, but in Ukraine, serfdom was commingled with national oppression. Uh, they were just property. They, they were brutally, brutally mistreated. We were slaves until, until the emancipation, and actually until the revolution uh, of 1917, things didn't change too yeah. much. Isn't that so? We come to Nina Matvienko. There's a sadness about about yeah. all these uh, yeah. songs as you now feel. We, now we we're talking. We had the music of the Carpathians. Now moving further east, are we? With Nina's now we'll music. be we'll be in the Poltava region. What the Poltava Ukraine. is eastern. Now we're moving east. See, I'll ask you about Asiatic influence. That's maybe seven hundred miles to yeah. the east. Of the, the Battle of Poltava was the famous one when Peter the Great uh, beat Charles the Twelfth of Sweden. Yes, isn't that it? Charles XII with uh, Hetman Mazepa, whom uh, you've heard referred to in, in Liszt music and in, in very many mm. literary works of uh, Western Europe. What the Battle of Poltava from that. Right. You see, Khmelnytsky, uh, to defend himself, for himself from the Poles in the middle of the 17th century, allied himself with the Russians. That was one of the turning points in Western European civilization. And that was also opening the, the window to the West in Peter the Great's day, that Russia was open to the West. Well, the Peter the Great's day, yeah. I think as far as Russians are concerned, uh, they should call him the Great probably because he consolidated yeah. Russia's yeah. hold over Ukraine Peter more than anything did, else. Yeah. Because Peter the Great did, yeah. It's 
after but, the battle so of Portola, things what changed. is Matvienko's song like? Nina's song. Let's listen to it. All right. Oh, that's beautiful. Nina Matvienko. Now, she, I take it, is one of the most popular singers. The regime, she, she, she is a true Ukrainian. The regime would like to get rid of her, but she's just too popular. Uh, I learned this from one of the main bases in, in the Kiev Opera. He was here recently, uh, well, several months ago, and he said that they, they tried to get rid of her several times, but they just couldn't. She just well, wait, so now this song, I take it as a pastoral song. Yes. This one is. She'd be singing it going back home uh, after working all day in the fields. If you can picture a flat landscape with the sun halfway down over the horizon and a woman walking home with yeah. a scythe over her shoulders, you know, tired, yeah. tired, thinking of her yeah. children, it's maybe. how we're heading also, we're heading west now, uh, for east rather, from the Carpathianism, we'll see changes too. Let's take a pause right now. Oleg Satchuk is my guest, and uh, Ukrainian music is his game very definitely and his interest, and uh, this is history, the land, the music, the instruments, and we'll go back, way back into history to in a moment after this message. So resuming with the reflections and, and the music, Ukrainian music of Oleg Satchuk, we, have a, we, we haven't had much talk about the choirs. There's a Kiev choir. The same choir that you heard uh, backing up Nina Matvienko uh, is singing a medley of Ukrainian folk songs here. I chose this song because it has a definite rhythm. This is, there, there are three different traditions in the modernization of Ukrainian folk songs. One is based on the music of the Carpathians. Another one is based on the, on the Cossack music, which is played mostly on the bandura, which you'll hear in a moment. very soon. And the second is based on the peasant singing of central and eastern Ukraine. And what they do is, what they have done is they have taken melodies and augmented them with, uh, with many voices in the choir and also used some instruments uh, like the cymbal at times, cymbals, uh, the tambourine, some accordions, and so, not balalaikas, but some Ukrainian lutes as well. A lute, so this is... Bayan. So we're hearing a medley of familiar, toward the east, Ukrainian folk songs, I yes. imagine, by the Kiev choir. You'll, you'll hear the rhythm here. It's beautiful. The medley is coming up. This is still Nina Matvienko singing the with the women of the choir. Yeah, the, thing of this, the theme of this song was that a husband wouldn't beat his wife were she nice to him, were, were she to speak softly to him all the time. I don't want to, I don't want to play that one too long because the women here might well, <laughs> become you know, upset. It's, it's an anti-feminist song, <laughs> obviously. It's a traditional a song of, uh, of uh, domestic dispute. There, these are the women of the Kiev choir backing Nina Matvienko in it. Now, the medley you talked about. You hear yeah, men as, yeah. uh, as now, well as women. Now, the, now comes the medley. Yes. The medley. That's the medley. Uh, now, the male, this is all of the choir. Very interesting. There. In 1976, if you recall, uh, Moiseyev came to the United States to help celebrate the bicentennial with uh, a number of groups from throughout the Soviet Union. And uh, the Ukrainians were represented by some dancers, naturally. That's what we're most famous for. And I was lucky enough to meet with some of our boys, not only here, but I followed them to several cities. And I had a very enjoyable time. One of the interesting things that they told me is that Moiseyev's choir 
is mostly composed of Ukrainian women. That our girls from Poltava make up uh, more than half of Why, the. Uh, is that is that a singing region? Is that it, Poltava? It's uh, a singing yeah. region because yeah. it had to be so. The, the people were so poor. They could. They didn't have the time to make instruments. They didn't have the money to buy Western instruments. They had to sing. Yeah. Which is an interesting point. I, I mentioned this uh, when we were listening to the music. The Irish and the Ukrainians are very similar. The Irish were a very oppressed people. The Ukrainians are a very oppressed people. The Irish are singers and the Ukrainians are singers. Uh, the Irish also have very high tenors, and that's what we have. Of course, we have the very low yeah, basses yeah. as well. That's interesting. Paul Plisch, well, here again, opera. see what the music does, the parallels, the analogies, one people to another, particularly those who are put down. And uh, you speak of the voice, the singers, the girl singers with Moiseev, many from Poltava. And also, I'm mu much a cappella singer, I imagine, because of the lack of instruments, except homemade ones in some instances yeah. in the past, you're talking about. Now, we, ha we haven't talked about the Cossacks of Ukraine. Now, this goes That's how far back? They go back to the late 13th century, early 14th century. A Ukrainian noble, probably a Ukrainian noble by the name of Baida Veshnevetsky, whose family later, unfortunately, was uh, assimilated into the Polish nobility, began the, the uh, Brotherhood of Cossacks as a defense against the Tartars which were in, uh, who were in Crimea. We're talking about 13th, 14th century now. Right. You see, yeah. uh, there have been some very some turning points in Ukrainian history, which were also turning points for Western European history, for world history. The first one might have been the year 988, when the Ukrainian uh, Knyaz Volodymyr Christianized uh, Kiev. He sent what his was emissaries. It what was the religion before? They were that? pagans. Yeah. They believed they yeah. they believed in in the gods of the forest. Mm -hmm. Perun, uh, who was the the god of uh, of thunder, Dashbog, who was uh, the god of the sun. Are the sun was the I'm highest. curious. Are there still some of these animistic, some of these pagan touches, and some of the music too? As probably yeah. throughout yeah. Europe, uh, the Ukrainian Church, both Orthodox and Catholic, embodies the uh, pagan tradition. They accept the Christianity, you, you, but... You say, uh, I thought it was Orthodox, it, it, most of it. Was Ukrainian also Catholic, too? Western Ukraine is yeah. mostly Catholic Western because Ukraine, of our relation ah, with the I Poles. See. Western Ukraine, Catholic, Eastern Ukraine, Orthodox. Right. Most of, most of Ukraine is Orthodox, but there are some maybe oh. 8 million out of 45 ah. million Catholics. So we're going to hear the... When we think of Kazakh music, we think of male voices, of course, it, uh, the Don Kazakh choirs. But go ahead. Let me get back to Volodymyr. Yeah. He Christianized Ukraine. He sent his emissaries through through the world. Mm. He went to the Arabs to see if they could become Mohammedan. He liked their religion, but he said, no, uh, my people uh, can't be Mohammedan if they cannot drink. <laughs> that was out. He visited the Khazars. The Irish and the Ukrainians drink, uh, well, naturally, too, <laughs> uh, the idea of celebrating with the water of life as well as singing. Yes, they, yeah. he, he went to the Khazars, which were a Judaic culture in an area close to what is now Bulgaria. Somehow he didn't accept their religion. He went to Rome. He liked it, but when they went to Constantinople, the Greeks, salesmen that they are, put on such a show that his emissaries were overcome by the majesty and he accepted their religion. Also, he wanted to marry the emperor's sister. So the emperor didn't want to listen to that, 
Volodymyr went to the Crimea and took a couple of Greek cities and said, now I want to marry your sister. And the emperor says, well, first become a Christian. So Volodymyr became a Christian. But can you imagine what would have happened had he either accepted Judaism, how the face of the world would have been changed irrevocably, or had he accepted the Muslim religion, or even Catholicism. There, it would have been impossible for Ukraine today to be to to be under Russia because uh, religion was uh, a very great part of what drove Ukrainians to ally themselves against the Poles in the 17th mm. century with the Russians. That was the beginning of our. And so, in reflections, perhaps of all this, an echo of the steps. This is the now. Here we speak of Asiatic influences. You've been talking, and here we're here at now. This is in the thirteenth. What, what in choir the is this? This I'm is sorry. the Bandura's choir. Yeah. Now, why Cossacks? In the thirteenth century, Genghis Khan's grandson came through Ukraine and destroyed everything. There was nothing left. The only remnants of Ukrainian uh, culture remained in the West, in the Carpathians and Galicia in Volyn, and uh, they were dominated by Lithuanians and the Poles. But uh, failing to go too deeply past Austria in Europe, the Tartars retreated and settled in Crimea. And from there, for centuries, they plundered Ukrainian territory. That's why the, Ukra the Cossack Brotherhood was begun mm -hmm. around the bend of the Dnieper to defend against the Tartars. But because of their relation with the Tartars, they accepted the bandura, which was an Arab yeah. instrument. It developed from, from uh, Arab lutes. It's a 34-string lute, very mellow in sound, and the songs with, with which Cossacks played really had some elements of folk music in them, but also yeah. elements of the East. Well, you see this here again, through music, the influences of invasions, the indigenous music, the East, the West, and of course this is, this, I suppose, is the excitement of musicology itself, its history, its anthropology. And here, echo the set. What group is this singing? This is the Bandurists Choir from Detroit. As I s said earlier in the program, they defected as a group in 1945. So th this is de they're in Detroit now. Right. Now, what's interesting is that the song you'll hear now is performed by mostly young men. They're not the same anymore. Most of them died. They're young men in their so 20s. Would these be am American Ukrainians? Oh, yes. Yeah, or these are first generation and second generation. Ukrainian American. Even some of our boys from Chicago who go to Detroit to, to By practice. Way, one question before we echo the steps. Is, is this retained a lot in Ukrainian households, the language spoken? What about your kids? My children speak Ukrainian. Well, what about other. You are very interested in Ukrainian culture and language. What about uh, others? As, other as, any, as, any, as any immigration, eventually we have to assimilate. Yeah. There, there's no way of escaping that. But there's but a strong hold to the old world well, culture. Because of uh, the historical developments ah. in Ukraine, we have had waves of political emigres. My parents were political emigres. And these waves uh, serve to reinforce Ukrainian culture here. And this is the instrumental. This is the bandura. This was written in the last couple of years by the director of the group, Hrihori Ketaste. It's called Echo of the Steps. He uses, uh, as you heard, the high tones yeah. are played the bandura has a bridge, just like the violin. It has 34 strings, but a very long bridge. And the high uh, sounds were played on the short end of the string, on the other side of the bridge, to imitate the, the sound of, of the rustling uh, grass, maybe. You know, I'm thinking of, as I, I listen to the bandura band here, the Ukrainian bandura band, 
I thought of also Yugoslav music and that the tamborica, you know, Duquesne University has a tamborica band of the uh, Yugoslavian and many other parts of the country. And so here again we have a certain instrument, primarily played by the males, women play it too, and, and that is, becomes almost the, uh, the evocation of the whole culture of a people. So why we haven't heard, you gotta hear, it's mandatory, we gotta hear the Kazakh choir, that the guy's yes. male voices. Now this is a song from dating back to maybe 1919, during the time of war in Ukraine. Uh, it's a song about a partisan leader, Chichunek, as he, the, sing, the, the Cossack singer, he will take Kiev, go to Kiev and take it and liberate the land. It's funny, this is German. Lied über Yuri Kachunik. It was recorded in Germany in 1954, this particular record. This, so this is the song of Chunik. Chichunek. Chichunek. And there we hear uh, the choir. This is Ukrainian-American. Choir. Well, no, these these are the original Bandurists. Uh, they recorded this in Germany in 1954. Oh, these are, these are the, they are the ones guys. who came from Ukraine. These are the original guys. Now the group has yeah. been augmented. Well, yeah. old by members have been replaced by, by sons and, yeah. and just young people. Probably another song, Ivashuk. Uh, the guy we heard in the beginning. Vodorai is what? Why have we heard all this? So we, we have a reason for knowing why Ukraine's modern songs sound the way they sound now. Vodorai right. is the waterfall. And this, again, is the, the murdered Ivasyuk yeah. writing about the waterfall. Uh, he says, we'll go into the waterfall and let the water play for us. Yeah, but you mentioned the, uh, a moment ago off here, the Kotzva. Kobza, the, the name Kobza. of the group. The name of the group is Kobza. Yeah. Kobza being the ancient name for Bandura. Uh, actually, the instrument was a little bit different. The Bandura developed, uh, developed from the Kobza. Interesting that the group Kobza was for a long time banned from playing anywhere outside of Kiev because also they wouldn't sing anything but Ukrainian songs. Mm. You know, let's hear this. You just gave me an idea. I'm going to find an old recording of a Kobza by an old, old Ukrainian. But this is Vodarai. In hearing Konoplenko. I had never heard him before, and he was very good. Well, I was thinking, you know, in hearing him also, the how the Kobza play by virtuoso sounds. And it becomes a string band. Yes. You're we talking now about influences. Go ahead. About, oh, maybe two or three weeks ago, uh, <coughs> I came across, maybe a month ago, across a record of a young group called the Viziers of uh, New Pass. So that, that's an approximation of the translation of the name. Vizarneki Shlachiu. A group which incorporates Ukrainian melodies into a Cuban rhythm. Now, I can't say for sure, but my deduction is that they must have served in, in Cuba. As you know, there are thousands of uh, Cuban advisors or soldiers, uh, Soviet advisors or soldiers on Cuba, and a good percentage of them must be Ukrainian, because there aren't any Ukrainian soldiers in Ukraine, just Russians. Ukrainians are sent and to the so Chinese border And so some of the Soviet soldiers in Cuba are Ukrainian kids. Yes, and these particular kids who are very talented, as you'll hear, picked up this, this Cuban music. On the same record, they even sing one song, Guajira, in Spanish, and it's incredible. They have a very slight accent. I, <laughs> I couldn't you know, believe is, it. This is fantastic. Now we're talking about invasions, influences, for the centuries, one country and another, souls of another, one culture on another, to another, and this is the nature of 
folk music and musicality in its best sense. Well, we in see that here. showing how influences bear upon one. You, you, you think that these are some of the kids who served in Cuba who've gone back to the Ukraine with Cuban influences. Yes. As you'll hear, it can't right. be any other way. And, you know, it's interesting that as the world becomes more and more uh, modernized, as it becomes smaller through communication, there are certain uh, processes which no regime can escape, be it a totalitarian regime in Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union, or a totalitarian regime any, anywhere else in the world. Once the desire to be free in cultural terms reaches the people and permeates their being, there is no turning back and no regime can hold them back. That's our, that, that's our hope for the liberation of our, of our homeland. So what is this? This song, I Love Your Shores, is the song. Now, interesting enough, they use Cuban rhythms. They've been throughout the world, and yet they sing a song about the Dnipro River. I love your shores. Dnipro. You know, I think this, is a, this is as good a way as any to end this program, yes. I think. We have the fusion in language, in music, and Oleg Sachuk. You know, thank you very much for this what reflections on Ukrainian music and various influences on it. History Thank you for having me. Here. What's the Ukrainian word for good luck? Szczęście, in one word. Mm. And my saying to you, Bajaju vam bahato szczęście, means I wish you oh. very much luck. Bajaja, Bajaja, Bajaju, Bajaju vam, vam szczęście. Szczęście to you. Thank you. And we have this fusion. <laughs> 